Welcome to the Carl Landry Record Club podcast, music podcast from the rights to Ricky Sanchez. I'm Spike, along with a raring to go Mootlu. He's just fucking firing from all cylinders right now. Oh yeah, zip yeah. Mootlu raring to go on a roll. What is your, we've talked a bit about the fact that I get up really, really early. What is your normal, because you know, you're a, a musician and a lot of your work happens at night and I imagine your schedule is different. What is your normal wake up time on like a regular day? I would say 9.30 or 10. Oh, that's reasonable. You're not one of those nah. fucking 12.30 motherfuckers. <laughs> no, because I like to still have some of the morning. I, I found over time if I sleep too late, like it, it just kind of throws my whole rhythm off, especially once it gets into winter. Yeah. Uh, even if I go to bed super late, I still tend to wake up around the same time. I do enjoy the morning when I don't have anything to do. The morning is a nice time before everything starts coming at you. You know what I mean? I do. I, I like sleeping on the weekend, but I also like a good early wake up with nobody fucking in my, in my stuff. You know what I mean? Yeah. I feel like there's less intense energy coming at you then. There's a quietude. Yeah, quietude. I've been looking for a good uh, opportunity to use that word. Quietude? Yeah, quietude. I like that. (laughs) Oh, so I, you say, it's all one word to you. To me, it was quietude as like quiet attitude. It's the same thing, but Ah, if you separate ah. it, it seems more Philadelphia to me. I like like that. It's a, it's a quiet, there, it's a thing. It's a, it's a concept, a quietude, but it's also a way of being. Yeah, it is a way of being. I like quietude. That's how I want to live my life. That is, you know, the Unabomber got most things wrong, but he pretty his, much got everything wrong. His desire to live in the well, his fear of uh, of advancing technology and living in the forest, I think probably are the two things that you could say. Well. Living in the forest actually doesn't seem like that bad, but the sending bombs to people really just awful. Uh, yeah, that was yeah. a pretty horrible thing. Yeah. He did. Isn't there a new? There's a new series, like a mini series about him. I have not seen it. I have not seen it. There's. I promise. We'll get to the music in one second. There, it, there are a couple of interesting interviews with Ted Kaczynski that he's done over the years. He obviously a lunatic, but it is funny to think back that he wrote that whole like dissertation or whatever, and the newspapers fucking printed it. Like, it's wild to think about that. You know what I mean? He was like, here's my agenda. And the New York Times was like, all right, cool, let's roll. It is crazy. Right, they allowed it. And the strange thing is, uh, I guess, in a way, I don't think it would have been, it wouldn't wouldn't have been absorbed by the public in the same way now with social media. That thing went on for a long time. A long time. It, it was, was a few like months, if I recall. Correctly. It was like the thing. It was so much so that the, the only reason it was in my head, I was at work the other day, and this guy that, that does mornings for us at CBS Sports Radio named Sean Morash was walking. It's like six thirty in the morning. He was walking through the newsroom, and he had a hooded sweatshirt on with a hood up and the sunglasses on. And I was like, "Yo, you're dressed like the Unabomber today." And it's funny that 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 how did he how did he receive. <laughs> that artist rendering. Ah, that, I, work uh, at a, I work at a funny place. Analysis. Like, that's not really like that out of the ordinary for me to go. Yo, you look like the Unabomber or whatever. But that <laughs> that that image was so iconic that the only thing that you remember that you see was like middle aged white guy sunglasses hood up. And if if you hadn't seen that, there's no way you would have recognized who the person was. That was what you were looking for. You and know? the strange thing is, do you think? Do younger people, this younger generation, Gen Z, do they even know who that is? Because I don't, I don't think so. 
No, I don't. It's think of so. a very particular time, and and it's it's interesting sometimes to a b things that happen sort of pre social media, yeah, and post social media. Oh, and yeah. I always wonder about if a particular story had happened or a, a particular event or series of events had happened, you know, pre social media that we sort of have a certain perception of post social media. How much does that change it? There are so many things from the 80s and 90s, and I could list them off. And you, if you're of that age, you know, you could go the Menendez brothers, the OJ trial, JonBenet Ramsey, all these things that occupied years of our attention. How quickly maybe we would have run through them or like what the importance level would have been then compared to now, whether it would have been more important, whether it would be perceived as less important. There were a lot of those, Rodney King, the, there were a lot of those like big news events that took up so many, so many months and so much of our brain space. And we were all focused on the one thing for a long time. It is interesting to think what that would go, what would that, that would look like today. And I'd venture to say any number of those things that you mentioned would have a much shorter cycle because sure. now- we're bombarded with 50 things at mm -hmm. once. Yeah. And we just don't have the bandwidth to stay with anything. No. Collectively for too long. No. And the, the problem, the, there's so many problems with that, but one of them is you, the story never reaches its natural conclusion to you. So your first perception of whatever the story is, that's what it is. And there's never any, there's never really like any end to it. I remember... I remember interviewing Chuck Klosterman years and years ago while I was unemployed. And it was while the Paterno story was happening, when the Penn State story was happening. And he was talking about how when you would write an article previous to the internet and social media, you would, you would go through draft after draft after draft and you'd do reporting for months and months and months. But he said now, and this was in 2011, he was like, now every draft of yours is a new, is a new article. And, and in the end, in the before, you would have just gotten the one final article when you had parsed everything. But now every new, new thing, new, new thought, new investigation is a new article about the same thing. So what happens is, is wh whenever you stop paying attention, that, that is the, that is what, it, that's what happened to you is whatever it is at that moment is what happened to you. Do you see what I'm saying? Like Interesting. If, yeah. if you're yeah. perceiving the story and you only perceive through the first 20% of it, there's a time where you would have even known about the story at that point. There wouldn't have even been a story to you at that point. You wouldn't have read it because it, it wouldn't have been published. It wasn't done yet. And now, now it just, we're just getting drips and drabs as the story evolves. So it's almost impossible now for people to have a comprehensive viewpoint, a multifaceted, multi-layered viewpoint on something because they just drop in at a certain point yep. and that becomes a perception, which is why there's so much distortion of seemingly objective facts, you know? Sure, uh, yeah. That, that's, I think that's part of the, that gets to the whole misinformation thing. Because again, if people are just parceling out certain moments of something, and they make their conclusion based off that, well, then you can have a dozen different conclusions on what something really is. And, and previously, that would have been a, a, a reason for to interest and look deeper into it. 
is like, okay, well, we have eight different people saying eight different things about the same thing that happened. You know, we have to keep going until we figure out which the right one is. But instead, we just perceive one of them and we decide that that is the one. And then we just sort of like move on and go to whatever the next trending thing is. It's pretty wild. It's crazy. And I wonder if that's why documentaries have become even more popular. Maybe they're just more outlets for it on streaming. But for people who do still want to absorb something in a more comprehensive manner, uh, it, it's an outlet to actually do that, to do what you're saying, to, to get 8, 10, 12 different perspectives on something and then try to come up with a viewpoint rather than sort of just one very lam- limited, narrow lane on something. Yeah, to just go back and go like, oh, that's what happened. I think I think one thing you said is definitely true. Having streaming services, because, you know, documentaries never were never that popular in theaters, uh, but on streaming services, people are interested in them. And I think the, the thing that is unfortunate now is there's so many great documentaries, so many. And, you know, one of the, one of the first popular ones from our childhood, like Hoop Dreams ended up being oh, one that was great. Film. great. Wow. But that one took, he followed those guys around for seven years, eight years, whatever. And that now the unfortunate thing is because the popularity of documentary is what they sometimes become now as these streaming services put them together is really just like a collection of the news stories that happened at the time with interviews instead of, because I I think that the right documentary is you're documenting something, you are going along as it happens and recording it. And then at the end, taking it and parsing what happened. I think there's a lot of like probably 60 minute specials documentary, masquerading as documentaries on streaming services now. Do you see what I'm saying? Like I think there is a little bit of a difference. Yeah, taking collage of news information and and news content and then sort of post-production editing it and then getting commentary. And doing some commentary, yeah. Yeah, and that's not really, is that that truly a documentary form or is it sort of a, it is I guess in a way, but it's not in the true sense of the word. Yeah, I think it looks and feels like a documentary. It looks and feels like it, but it is not the same thing. I think you could do you could do a that style documentary on the on William and who is the other kid from Who Dreams? Arthur, I th- Arthur, Arthur from AG. Who Dreams. You could do that. You could, but it, w- it would be very different than actually being in the room at the time and and all of those things. So anyway, let's talk about music. Let's talk about music. Good chat. Good chat. Yeah, we've had some good uh, sort of introductory tangents as yeah. of late. Good tangents, positive tangents. We love talking about full albums on the Carl Landry Record Club and some new music, but but the concept is full albums and discovery, music discovery from the old-fashioned way, from people telling you they like it. Two albums we do every week. One comes from you and one comes from one of us. It is Mutlu's week. So he picked Hermanos Gutierrez's El Bueno El y Malo from 2022 and I was listening to one of these songs. I was like, this sounds familiar. And it was because we did one of the songs in our one of our best of episodes. But that came out. And then the listener pick came from Jay. Jay says, Spike and Mike, I love the podcast. Would like to recommend the album so that you might hear me. 
by Bear's Den. I also want to recommend the March 16th episode from the podcast On Being, where host Krista Tippett speaks with Rick Rubin. A lot of the conversation had me thinking about how Mutlu and how he has talked about the creative process. I thought both of you would appreciate the parts of that conversation. Thanks. And I think it's worth listening to because I think we've both taken sort of like, what does that guy even do? Swipes at Rick Rubin occasionally <laughs> during the podcast. So it's it's uh, it would be interesting to listen to. As well, Moot picked a new song so we don't feel too old. We tried to pick a new tune every every pod and picked Them Changes from Thundercat. So why don't we do uh, Hermanos Gutierrez and then we do Thundercat and then we'll do Bear's Den. How's that? Sounds good. And before we get into this, I will say my perception of Rick Rubin is changing a little bit. Ooh. You know, like I, I've been seeing these reels of him yeah. where he just gives these like minute long snapshots of what he thinks about the creative process and everything he says is profound. I, I just, mm. I gotta be honest. I, it's mm. well, that's it's, good. It's you kind of silly that social media somehow helped me engage with him in a different way, but I've been seeing these things in my feed where it's it's a snippet of him from an interview or just him sharing an idea about his experience about, you know, working on records. And everything he says just, uh, it, it actually gives you a sense of confidence in a way. Like he, he has this one thing where he talks about, you know, it should, you create because you, you need to do it for you. And Whatever brings you joy or excites you, that's the thing. Don't allow any other outside forces to infiltrate that process because the moment you do that, that's when you get led astray. And there are so many outside forces and artists that you feel like you have to listen to sometimes. And for yeah. a guy like Kim who's had the commercial success he's had to say, no, just follow your muse. Just to hear something like that from someone who's been in the room with so many hits is inspiring. There's a lot of, that's one small example. So mm. yes, oh, my but, perception is changing on him. By the we should do a Rick Rubin episode. We should get a Rick Rubin expert on. Who would, would that fun. be? Who would be a Rick Rubin? I don't Rubin? know. There's got to be a Rick Rubin expert, right? Can we get I mean, Rick Rubin himself? I mean. Uh, I don't think so. <laughs> probably but not. Probably, probably not. not. But maybe. I don't know. You, you never know. And by the way, to suggest an album yourself, many ways to do it. Uh, if you follow us on social media, just hit the link tree that is in the bio. There's a suggest in there. If you go to carlandryrecordclub.com, there is a suggestion there. If you're listening on Spotify, right under the player, it asks you right there what album should we review next. Or you could leave it in the Apple Podcast reviews in the ratings. Give us a five-star rating, leave the review, and put it in in your review what album you would like us to talk about and what your name is so we get them from all different places now all right so let's kick it off So, Hermanos Gutierrez, as you mentioned in our year-end episode uh, several months back with Jason Lipschitz, I had picked one of these songs. It, it was in my top ten playlist, but it was actually one of the songs I picked, the five that I picked to discuss. And that track was Trey's Hermanos, so you probably recognize that one. Mm -hmm, it's actually yep. Trey's Hermanos featuring Dan Auerbach. Dan Auerbach produced the, this record. You know, mainly he was in the producer role, but he actually featured on that one particular song. But the record is El Bueno e Imalo. A bueno y a malo. 
Good delivery there? I, I don't know. Yeah. yeah I, I don't know. Not not you're bad. asking, I'm, I don't fucking Good, know. Like, just, just passable. Well. Just passable. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Hermanos Gutierrez are Alejandro and Stefan Gutierrez Holt. They were born to an Ecuadorian mother and a Swiss father. They grew up in Switzerland, mm. but they would spend their summers in Ecuador absorbing sort of the music and the culture of Ecuador. And their grandfather was a big influence on them. He was a musician. And over time, it seems they sort of developed their musical inspiration, their influence through those trips and started to become musicians in their own right. And that those early trips, it seems, helped to develop their sound or just sort of those reference points that they heard as they were growing up and traveling to Ecuador. Now, in the last six years, they've been quite prolific. They've released six albums in six years since 2017. Mm. In 2021... Dan Auerbach heard their album, He Jost Del Sol, and reached out to them on social media. And the rest, as they say, is history. He ended up signing them to his Easy Eye Sound label, and he produced this record. He didn't really, he talked about how he didn't do too much to change the sound. You know, there's, we getting back to the Rick Rubin thing, but there are a lot of different ways you can go about producing a record. And Dan Auerbach is incredibly skilled and a very versatile, dynamic musician and producer, I could definitely see him being someone on certain records who would be very hands-on hmm. and would be very would really immerse himself in actually what's happening musically. With this record, he just wanted to capture what he heard and you know, didn't want to affect it too much or change it too much, maybe just some subtle dynamic and nuance in the production textures, but mainly he just wanted to capture what these two brothers could do together and 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 just spotlight that and get a snapshot of it in the studio. And sometimes the best thing you can do as a producer is to just lay back mm-hmm. and not try to impose too much of yourself on it. seems that's what he did. So I'll spotlight a few of these uh, songs. I'll go back to Trace Hermanos because... Great tune. Great tune, right? That's a... Yeah. was my introductory point to this band and then i sort of got into that track and started listening to this record and i've just kind of had it on repeat for the last several months it's one of those albums where you can sort of focus in on it and absorb a lot of what's happening musically and take in some of the nuance and dynamic there it can also kind of be a background thing while you're doing other things and it, it works well in both ways but whenever you listen or for me this happens it sort of evokes a certain feeling. It puts you in a very particular place. And when I first heard this track, Trace Hermanos, it was one of those songs that sort of immediately created a visual for me. It's like a traveling song, yeah. desert landscape. <laughs> this it, whole it, album has so much of that. Is like, yeah. <laughs> there's so much of this album that is like, cowboy walks into the bar, yes. looks around and, and sort of like uh, assesses the situation and you know the cowboy's a badass, but you know that there's somebody in the bar that is that is almost, that can, you know, he'll meet his match with one of those dudes. It's so, it's it's such a, it does, this this song and this album does paint that picture quite well, I think. There, you just set the scene right there and you can cut yep. that tension with a knife when yep. he walks in. Yep. And, and fittingly, you're kind of mentioning though that sort of Western, it reminds you of a Sergio Leone score. And I think that's by yeah. design. One other, It makes me think of other films too, though. This might seem sort of random, but have you ever seen the film Red Rock West? 
No. With Nicolas Cage. And you're a big Nicolas Cage guy. Yeah, I am. But he's, he's been in 7,000 movies. movies so right. <laughs> yeah, I haven't seen all of them. Well, this is earlier Nicolas Cage. This is early 90s Nicolas Cage. Okay. And it's one of my favorite films of his and in general. Is directed by John Dahl, who I think is a very underrated filmmaker. Has done more television recently. It's a Nicolas Cage, Dennis Hopper, Laura Flynn Boyle, and J.T. Walsh. And I won't give too much of it away. It's worth watching. This the soundtrack or the score of that film is a big part of it. Okay, it's a big part of what sets the mood of the film, and it made me. This album makes me think of that too. Not even just the sort of the westerns, but certain films that create a certain mood and atmosphere. It made me think of that one. Now that being said, they've they've mentioned that they draw inspiration from spaghetti western soundtracks, like the Sergio Le- Sergio Leone soundtracks or Stel- uh, Stelvio C- uh, Cipriani. They've also mentioned that they have a heavy influence of psych- psychedelic music, which you can hear, and especially Latin and South American music of the fifties to the seventies. So they're sort of a they're sort of tapping into an older, a past era, mm-hmm. uh, which kind of gives it that. I don't want to say nostalgic, but there's something classic about this sound that is immediately recognizable when you hear it. Absolutely. I, I love the use of reverb on oh, the yeah. guitar throughout it. it. It's so perfect. I feel like I can see the guitar, you know, <laughs> almost, or I can see the amp. It does. It feels like a Fender amp with the, the chorus up. And it honestly, the reverb makes it sound like it is in that bar. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, th- there's something about the the sound on the guitar and the 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 way that it's produced and the 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 the, the sonic landscape that they are that they have created that sounds like it is where you're imagining it. If that makes any sense. And that's incredible too that a record can transport you to something so specific. Yep. Yep. A hundred percent. That's sort of in the cultural lexicon, just collective consciousness that we just sort of, ah, you right away associate it with something. Yeah, absolutely. Which doesn't always happen. There's a lot no. of records that, you know, you would just be kind of insular and you just think of it in and of, in and of itself. But yep. this evokes something else. Another highlight, my favorite track actually on the album is Hermosa Drive. To me, that song is a good example of just of just how unique and distinctive they are in their sort of compositional acumen and, and sort of the tasteful arrangements they create. Now, it's a recognizable sound, but I think there's a lot of time and care that they put into crafting these songs and sort of building the tension and dynamic in the songs. I'll do a little bit of a breakdown of that one, just because it's one of those songs that initially I just listened to, you know, absorbed in a in a more general fashion. And then eventually as I listen, I was like, oh, well, what is it that's making this song work so well? What is it about the arrangement? And I'll just kind of break down like the sort of parts of the song that I think give sort of that musical DNA. You have this intro that's sort of a, a melodic rhythmic sort of thing, but has like that start stop kind of feel. And that has its own very memorable melody, uh, melody within it. And you hear that intro cycle back. It sort of resets the song each time you hear it. Yeah. Then you get to the main body of the song, which I'll call like section A or the verse, which has, once again, another immediately memorable uh, 
a melody that, again, transports you to that very specific place. You think of certain films and just a certain images with that. So that section eight comes in. And then to sort of break it up, you hear the intro line again, that sort of stop start thing. Then the second time that section A comes in, this time it builds to a B section, which I guess, I guess you could say is like the chorus in a way, but it's really more like a bridge. Mm-hmm. And then that B section contains multiple melodies that are that sort of build upon themselves. And at every step of the way, there's there's never just like meandering solos or or something that's not musically focused. It's all everything is part of the composition. Everything is a distinctive build and melody and just has that sort of beautiful <clears throat> kind of haunting kind of sound to it. <clears throat> Excuse me. After that B section, you come back around and you hear the intro again, that intro part sort of one more time before it sets it off to uh, section A and kind of brings the song home. So I, it was interesting to just to kind of analyze some of these songs and see, you know, what is it that makes these songs work? It's not just a groove and a riff and and something. There's some there's something very deliberate about each composition. It's interesting to hear you talk about it because it's much more difficult for me, even though I can hear what you're saying, it's much more difficult for somebody who isn't a musician to hear that in a, in songs without words in them. But when you're when when you describe it, it becomes more obvious to me. I can hear it once you describe it. I think there are sometimes that instrumental songs you can you can parse it out. They're a little more constructed, like like regular you know pop song construction. But these aren't. And the 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 point you made about the album not wasting anything or being deliberate. Every it's ten songs, thirty three minutes. There isn't a wasted second on the album. You know, like there isn't there isn't a time where it isn't going somewhere or being somewhere or coming back from somewhere or something. Like every song takes you through it and there's never a point, which is I think impressive on an instrumental album to never be like, all right, well, what's happening here? It never it never fades into the background when you're listening to it. Right. And I love that part of it because you know, that that's what makes it such a great album listen. I mean you could mm-hmm. you could isolate certain songs. From the record, and and they'll stand out. I mean, that's how I got into it was that Trace Romano's track. But it's a little over half an hour. It doesn't take up too much of your time. But those, for that half an hour, you can be fully engaged with this. And you, like you said, it kind of takes you on a musical journey, which kind of gets me to the closing track because there's something very cinematic about this music. And if you almost were to think of this album as a, let's say, it were the score for a short film, you know, mm-hmm. the closing track, Dorado, Dorado Valley would be the perfect closing track. It's the song. It has a little more of an upbeat major chord feeling to it. It has, it has that sort of closing credit thing. Yeah. You know, like yep. okay, the guy's riding off into the sunset. Yeah. You know, and sure. here here comes this song, 
as the outro credits happen. As a matter of fact, it would be interesting if someone just took this record and put it on over, used it as a sound, use it as a, a score for Absolutely. a movie. It could be, right? I yeah, mean, it yeah. could easily be that. You could almost work backwards from this mm-hmm. music and create the film, maybe, yep. you know? Sort, yeah. of a, sort of a throwback to a country western kind of thing. But yeah, I just think this is a, this is such a great album, start to finish. Again, I do think it's best if you just absorb it as a whole. I mean, that's our thing is to is to listen to albums. And I, I realize most people just don't listen, don't listen to music that way anymore. I don't even know that I do that often anymore, as much as I used to anyway. But there is something to get from taking an album in as a whole, especially something like this. And just got to give credit to Dan Auerbach as well. Obviously, he's a superstar with the Black Keys, but he has this whole other career as a producer and a label owner, and every project he gets involved in is just interesting. He, you know, talk about following your muse creatively. I don't think he's in it as far as these records or these artists that he signs uh, for anything commercial. It's just like what moves him, you know, musically. Like he discovered these guys online. He's like, I got to work with these guys, you know. And I think he's such a great musician, such a great producer that each record he sort of knows what he needs to bring to it. In this case, it was mostly to just lay back and try to capture what uh, Hermanos Gutierrez do because you don't really need to add that much to it. And it's interesting to see they're now – touring a good deal. They're out on on some festivals. And I think when you think of them on the festival scene, they're going to be quite distinctive out there. Oh, yeah, they're going to crush. There aren't a lot of bands like this doing... Who's channeling Sergio Leone in there? Yeah, and, and by the way, every every few years there is an instrumental act, like whether it's Rodrigo y oh, Gabriela. I saw them at the Electric Factory. That was incredible. Yeah, like every once in a while there, there is, uh, maybe maybe twice a decade there is something like this that happens. And by the way, artists like this fucking crush at festivals. They crush. Yeah. They, the, you know what I mean? They're not headliners, but they're five acts both before the headliner when everybody's focused and loves it and it sticks out so different. You know, you look at every time there's a festival, like whether it's Lollapalooza or what's the one that just happened uh, um, where Blink-182, Coachella, I look at the I look at the, the rundown. I, I try to play this game where I'm like, well, how many of these artists could I name a song of? And it, it's not many anymore. But when you start looking them up, it's either indie band or hip hop artist or indie band or hip hop artist. Like that's all, no offense to any of those artists, but that's really what it is. And something like this comes on and everybody's like, what the fuck is this? It completely flips the script. Yeah. It's funny that you say that because right before we started taping this very early episode, I I just (laughs) want to make note that this is as early as we have ever taped, I think. Yeah. But (laughs) I was looking through and I saw a promo for Bonnaroo. And I was, it's exactly what you just said. It's uh, it's almost like the the festival billing is kind of predictable at this point. Yeah. And and I don't know if it's that's just a byproduct of what's popular out there. I guess it makes sense, you know. Uh, but again, for a band like this to break through onto that circuit, a lot of times a band like this wouldn't break through onto that circuit. It'd be much more of a niche thing. They'd be playing little clubs or, you know, maybe like performing arts center kind of places if they get big enough. But uh, it's interesting. I'm, I wonder if I'd be curious if it's just the two of them, or if they supplement the, the sound. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm curious. That's one thing I didn't really look into because there's so much sound between just the two of them. You think of Rodrigo, you Gabriela. They didn't need no anything else. But this is more laid back. That that was very up tempo, sort of uh, high octane sort of music. 
The only other tunes I wanted to call out was Thunderbird. is just incredibly fucking cool and another song that has the the spirit specifically of Trace Hermanos is El Bueno El Malo I Mm. I thought has the same sort of walk into it the whole album does but that song felt like the same part of the movie to me as well the guy walks into the into the bar yeah yeah And the, and the bartender, around. the bartender sort of puts a whiskey glass in front of puts him. the whiskey glass out there. And by the way, the bartender knows what's about to happen. Right? Like, he's he's the bartender in those movies. He's sort of he gets it all. He he yeah. knows what's happening. He's sort of the he has the wisdom that no one yep. else in that room has. Somehow. And just cleans the place up right after all the shots get fired. Like a bunch of gunshots and a fight yeah. happening in the bars. Nothing new. He's it's not phased. He just no. hey, it's on to the next shift. You know, whatever. <laughs> he takes a break, and usually there is a there's usually a two level thing happening, right? Uh, you know, there's like a second level. Yep. To the bar, not oh, always. Yes, yes, but, yes, right. yes, yes. Yeah. Yep. There's sort of a sure. second level to the bar. Did you ever watch the show Deadwood? No, I know what it is, but I never watch it. <laughs> I have an image of like that, of the set of that of that show. Uh, you want to talk about the Thundercat tune before we get to Bear's Den? Yes, indeed. So Thundercat. Now, another artist that I had picked for our first year-end episode back in 2020. Yep. Uh, are you a, a Thundercat fan? I, c- I can't remember. Not really. Not really. I, I, yeah. I, I, when you when you sent this, I was like, did I like this or not? And then I went back and I was like... Dragon eh. Ball Do-Rag was the song I had picked. Yes. It's, it, when you listen to it, there are some tunes that you could put on and you're like, oh, yeah, that's a Mootloo song. And then, yeah. <laughs> this, is a, this is a Mootloo artist. It Absolutely. doesn't... It, it's it's cool. It doesn't speak to me. I gave it extra chances to try to get it to speak to me, but it doesn't. But but it is so in squarely down your lane. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. It's uh, if if the if the uh, musical scientists had to sort of go into a laboratory and put together take the musical strands of different things and create something. This this is so similar, like in the vein of what would resonate with me a hundred percent. Yeah, for sure. So Thundercat is Stephen Lee Brunner, but goes as Thundercat, singer, bassist, songwriter, and producer. Grew up in Los Angeles from a very musical family. Uh, His father, Ronald Brunner Sr., is a drummer. His mother, Pam, is a flautist and a percussionist. And his father played drums with some legendary groups, The Temptations, The Supremes, Gladys Knight, to name a few. So from a very musical family, was around it from a young age, and... He actually first started to gain more widespread recognition as a member of the thrash band Suicidal Tendencies, which I didn't oh, actually know. Were you aware of that? I didn't know that. No, he was in that band for t- almost a decade, uh, from oh, early uh, 2000s to around, I think, 2011. Legendary, legendary, legendary band, Suicidal Tendencies. And I guess if you you wouldn't necessarily think that because his, his music on his own has gone a totally different direction, but that was how he first really 
uh, got out there. Mm. Over the years, he's worked with a wide range of artists, both live and in the studio. Snoop Dogg, Rafael Sadiq, Kamazi Washington, Kendrick Lamar, Erica Badu, just to name a handful of those artists. It was actually Erica Badu and the producer flying artist producer Flying Lotus who first really encouraged him to start branching out and doing his own thing as an artist. Because for you know for many years and even to this day, he's someone who works behind the scenes for or as a side side man for a lot of different artists. But he started getting into his own groove, his own sound. He's released four albums to date. The the first record was The Golden Age of Apocalypse in 2011, Apocalypse in 2013, Drunk in 2017, and then It Is What It Is in 2020. Now, It Is What It Is won the best, um, won the Grammy for Best Progressive R&B Album at the 63rd Grammy Awards, and it features the song that I had picked in our year-end episode a few years back. It was actually our first year-end episode with Jason and AU, mm. Dragon Ball Do-Rag. Now, this song... I know we usually say it has to have come out in the last year or two. Technically, this re-release of it did come out in fall of 2022. But the main song originally came out on an EP called The Beyond Beyond The Beyond Slash Where the Giants Roam, and then also appeared on his third studio album from 2017, Drunk. So it's a song that came out a number of years ago, but they reissued it, re-released it with a few new versions uh, just in this past fall, 2022. And actually, the title of the re- re- re-release is Them Changes Sped Up. And when you, so there's three versions. There's the one I sent to you. But if you go back to that main single release, the first track is actually Them Changes Sped Up. And it is literally Them Changes Sped Up. Sped Up. <laughs> Instead of running about three minutes, it runs about two minutes. Okay. His, vo- his vocal is super high pitched. It's obviously the, the, fa- the track is, goes at a much hotter tempo. It's really cool. It's bizarre, but it's really cool. And that's part of what I love about Thundercat is like he's just an extraordinarily talented musician, but he seems to have a sense of humor about things. He, he, he doesn't mind doing something kind of outside of the box or kind, almost kind of ridiculous. I mean, it's a strange thing to say, I'm going to reissue this song, and it's going to be much faster than, the, than you originally heard it. There's also a third, a second remix there, uh, but in a way, the song got back out there again now because of this uh, reissue. Hmm. And this, the other remix that's on there is the Chop Not Slop remix. So if you like the track, it's worth hearing these other two versions of it, especially the sped up. And it's strange because the tempo is so much is is so much faster on that other version. It almost it feels like a different song. Huh. It, it's bizarre. It's bizarre, but really interesting musically. As far as the core track, though, I'd say this is quintessential Thundercat. Really showcases his ability to c- kind of create these deep syn- syncopated grooves. And it got me thinking about a few conversations we had in the past about uh, D'Angelo and mm. Sly and the Family Stone and certain other groups where when it's, it's, it is that sort of R&B soul sound, very groove heavy, and r- r- maybe you can say more into just a straight ahead funk sound where the bass line is, is sort of just a, a hair behind the beat, but still locked in with the drums, but a hair behind the beat. And when you listen to Pino Paladino on Voodoo, on D'Angelo's Voodoo, or you listen to Larry Graham and some of the Sly and Family Stone records, and you hear that, you hear it on some Earth, Wind, and Fire records, you hear that in the way Thundercat plays. Not not on every track, but you hear it quite often, where he's just kind of laying it just back, and there's just something to me that's musically magical when a, a musician can do that, when a rhythm section can do that, because that's what creates this like deep pocket, this deep syncopation that is very specific to only certain types of records, certain artists. Only certain artists can do it. It's not really something you can teach, 
but you definitely hear it on on a track like this. I'd also say his bass lines are like hooks in and of themselves. That's for sure. That yeah. I agree with. On this absolutely. track, you would agree, yeah. right? That's the, yeah. that's part of why I wanted to pick this one because it's it's not just a bass line. It's a <laughs> yeah. It's a melody in and of itself. It's a it's a musical statement of sorts. I'd also say he's an incredibly skilled vocalist. Another aspect of what he does that I really enjoy, he almost always has this very distinctive sort of rhythm, rhythmic pocket to his vocal delivery that you feel is connected in some way to the bass line. Like the the vocal sort of accentuates and then plays off the rhythm and specifically what he's what he's doing with the bass. And here's what I'll say about Thundercat. There's so much great music out there, but there are a lot of bands and artists that you'll hear that you have to take some time to get into it to find out what it is that's unique about them. Thundercat is one of those people that you recognize immediately. As soon as yeah. you hear four bars of a Thundercat check, you know it's him. There's 100% no, <laughs> unique. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. No I, almost yet. like when you suggested it, I was like, I know what this is going to sound like. And that, not, in a, <laughs> not in a bad way, but definitely has a signature sort of vibe and sound. Without, without everything, I'm not saying everything sounding the same. It's not like the Ramones or something, but there is a, there's a signature vibe and sound to his music. Unmistakable. And I would say he's also someone who takes, and this song is like that, takes nonlinear arrangements to another level. Maybe my favorite part of this song comes about midway through when he breaks up the groove and he goes in this beautiful layered kind of vocal arrangement that just sort of splits up the song into kind of two sections. And it, it just, it's, I guess it serves like a bridge in a sense, but I really like what he does with his vocal arrangements, the way he layers his voice. And sometimes his, the influence of 70s soul and funk is undeniable in his music, but he also has kind of that, a little bit of that 70s sort of, for lack of a better word, soft rock groove, because he's worked with, the collaborated mm-hmm. with the Michael McDonald and Kenny Loggins. And you, you oh, hear, really? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, I didn't know that. And yeah. You, <laughs> and you hear some of that. You hear different tentacles of the 70s. Obviously, you know, soul, funk, earth, wind, and fire. I think of that a lot when I hear his music. But, um, but and, and artists like D'Angelo, just that very specific way of, of laying down the rhythms. But then I also hear some of that other sound, which I guess people call yacht rock. That's yeah. a strange phenomenon to me. It's all these bands that I love, and somehow because of some viral video, it got it. They they tagged it with that line, which I guess is funny in a way. Well, at least it has. At least you know you know what people are talking about when they say it. You know right. what I mean? Like it's a right. it's a the genre itself is is maybe a genre that wouldn't have. Uh, look, by the way, saying saying yacht rock is no better than saying soft rock, which is what <laughs> people would have said beforehand. So I'd almost rather yacht rock. See, when I think of. Uh, Soft rock, I think of like air supply. Oh, that's fair. That's you know, because yeah. some of what is labeled yacht rock, uh, when you think of like Michael McDonald, I mean, there's that's some soulful music right there. Yeah, so it's yeah. not, I wouldn't say it's like too. You're so offended. Uh, <laughs> no, I'm not. No, I just, I find it's, it's funny that so much got lumped into that category, but those are some soulful records. See, Rebel knows what I'm talking Rebel about. Rebel knows. He's yeah, like, Rebel. listen, listen, listen. Come on, let's be fair here. He loves Michael McDonald just as much as the next guy. Yeah. Or the next Huge dog, Michael I should McDonald. say. Yeah, Listen, yeah it, it's a cool tune. I knew what it was going to be when I listened to it. I, it like, it's not going to be in any of my playlists, but um, I'm, he, it, he's got an interesting story that I did not was not aware of, and the collaborations are cool, and seems like a really cool musician. You know what I mean? So, listener album. Bears Den. Mm. So That You Might Hear Me. 
another good, another great listener suggestion. Uh, Absolutely. Just, I feel like we've discovered so many great indie records through the listener suggestions. Bands that I maybe had heard of, in some cases hadn't heard of. I feel like my knowledge of indie rock has just expanded leaps and bounds just from I from so many of these suggestions we've had. I would agree with you. Now, we were talking about, or I was talking about, looking at a Coachella or something list of bands. This sound would fit right in there oh, yeah. with a with just about any festival, could play any festival. As it turns out, does play festivals and is a apparently a, a really good live band. So Bearstan is a band from London, and they've been around for about a decade. They do tour a lot and are a, a popular festival band have played Coachella, have played Leeds, have played Reading. Um, and their, their, their live performances are a lot of what they're known for. They are two people now at one point we're three piece, Andrew Davey, who has vocals and guitar. And then Kevin Jones, who has vocals, drums, uh, and then playing bass and guitar as well. So Andrew Davey and Joey Haynes were the first two members they were friends when they were kids. They started, you know, writing, playing music together. And the band was originally called Bears Den and the Crow's Nest. They play, they graduate college, They're, they continue to play together and they decide that they want this to be their job. So they're playing around London and one night, Kevin, who is now the other member of the band, was in the audience, talked to them afterwards, joined the band called the band Bears Den. And then Joey, one of the original two members, left in 2016. It didn't seem like there was anything like like bad about the breakup. It just seemed like he was no longer interested in being a full-time musician. So now it is really just a two-piece, Andrew and Kevin. They have one EP out, which came out in 2013, called The Gape. And then their first full length comes out in 2014. And they're touring really really is what lifts them and, and helps them gain notoriety. And they're obviously fantastic songwriters as well. So then their first full length, I mentioned, comes out, comes out in 2014, Islands, and then Red Earth and the Pouring Rain in 2016, honored with a bunch of different British uh, music awards. And then this album comes out in 2019 called So That You Might Hear Me, produced by Phil Eck, who is a... If you want your indie band to have an indie band producer, has produced Fleet Foxes, The Wait, Shins. I was gonna say, where, why, where do we know that name? I know we've, that name has come up. I feel like multiple times. Band of Horses, The Shins, Fleet Foxes, like a, a lot, a lot of, um, a lot of different. Band of Horses, we got to do one of their records. Yeah, I would like to revisit them because they gained popularity when I was in Alternative and I never went and listened to it. And I, I think there was a lot of buzz about them then and the buzz annoyed me, so I never listened. You're were a they fan? a band that, yeah, I absolutely. And were they a band that made it? I always thought they were more in the in the AAA format. They were a band that crossed over into Alternative Rock? Well, they played, they were on. They were like a specialty show band and were on, were on a lot of tours. You know, like they were on a lot of alternative tours. So I don't know if they ever had a hit. I don't think they, they ever did, but they were, you know, the, the AAA world and the alternative world, if you live in the right city, are, kind and Chicago is one of those cities. They're are very interconnected connected. in a sense. Yeah, yeah. Um, 
the album is beautiful as as far as the, I, I think like, it, it's funny, like if you don't listen to the lyrics, it could sound like a very hopeful sort of uplifting album. I think those sometimes when you listen to the lyrics and, and, and dive in, there is a, a sadness to it as well. There was a, here's an Andrew Davey quote about the album. Uh, it was inspired by a poem. I read the poem and thought it perfectly encapsulated of what, I, what of, of what I wanted to talk about. It discusses the idea of wanting to reach someone, but finding that very hard or impossible. The album started out as an attempt to trying to communicate with someone honestly. Our thoughts are not all rational, not all considered or tied up with ribbons and bows. This album is an attempt to reveal the honest and difficult challenge of communicating with anyone that you really care about. Um, which I thought was, uh, was interesting. And then he said, it's about a bunch of different situations, but my relationship with my mother in particular, my mother, unfortunately is an alcoholic. It's very hard to talk to her, very hard to reach her. So this album is a way of talking about that for the first time, which is, uh, interesting as well. Like there are, this is a really pretty album and I can imagine it translating really well live. I think it is produced really, really well. I, I like, I, I don't say this as an insult. It may come across as an insult. It's almost like it was made in an indie rock lab on, <laughs> on some levels. I, I, because, because everything about it is good and sort of lines up with what it's supposed to be. If you were to ask an AI to create a sort of quintessential uh, indie rock album, is this close to what it would be? I, I, I don't think it wouldn't be this. I would, I would uh, <laughs> tell you that. There are a few songs that I that that really that really uh, stuck out to me. I'll mention a couple. Laurel Reef. Falling apart, bloodshot outside Craig Matty Hospital. I should fly by on the 93 water the yard. I don't know. Impossible. Got your call. I needed it more than I could let on to you. I could let on to anyone. Peered in the corners. Which was the first single of the album. I was talking about it, it sounding positive. This is one of those things where it's almost like the lyrics, the, the music feels that way to me. The music feels like rebirth. The lyrics do not. But there's some outstanding lyrics. One in this song, by all my towering defeats to be a champion in your eyes, someone that you might be proud to stand beside, but I bribe the judge and poison the field. Medals and trophies are only all that I could steal. I thought was like a, a pretty poetic and, and good. And it, by the way, makes you think about, you know, he talks about his relationship with his mother. Like you wonder that that seems like a, you know, a parent that you could never please sort of thing. Hearing that, knowing that backstory now puts certain things into perspective. Yeah. Whereas I just listened without any context, you, you kind of make certain assumptions. But now now that I know that there's a specific point of inspiration or need for communication, it, it brings some of the songs even more into light. There's a two-song sort of one-two punch, Crow and Conversations with Ghosts. My beautiful crow And all those black feathers perched deep in my soul Won't let me let you go And Crow is is a song 
another another amazing like lyric thing here, but is Andrew Davies' mother had a boyfriend who lived with him who was sort of like a, a second father to him who passed away when he was 15. And he said, I was writing this song as a way to, of talking to him. I'm probably proudest of the song, maybe of any song I've ever written. And the lyric in it that is just sort of like, like you used to be the one who could make me believe and now you're just the crow flying over me is a, wow. you know. And again, knowing the backstory of this song is, is uh, I think makes it sort of more meaningful in that way. And then the the next song is called Conversations with Ghosts. Do we talk anymore? Do our voices dance around themselves in circles till we can't hear a damn thing? We're still last stone, but our shadows are dancing upon the wall. And with, which is funny because he's it's an album about talking uh, in a lot of ways, talking about people who are, who have passed away. And he said, uh, if you ever get tired of having conversations with all these people that aren't there, we'll be here. Um, and that song which, is interesting because it almost has, it's one of the brighter, yeah. more sort of, I don't know, peppy kind of songs. Yep. And, but what he's talking about, it's that dichotomy is very, it's heavy, but it's framed in this way. It's got a major chord, almost sing along kind of thing. Yeah. So it's, it's, in a way, it makes it more digestible. Then, when you think of what's really being said, yeah, he's, it's about mortality and and grief in a way. Absolutely. And then the the final song of the album, I thought, sounds like a final song of the album, "Blankets of Sorrow," which paralyzed your stubborn mind. Can't see the woods behind the blankets of sorrow. No one could ever reach or pull you out. Sleeping as the sleep just. Sounds like a, a farewell to me. And again, another another sort of like prescient group of lyrics, especially considering what the album's about. Um, but I'll beg to differ more than I know how to let it show, not letting in or letting go, just saying what I've always known, that I only speak so that you might hear me, is, is another, you know, just like really, really solid, really, really good album and good band for exactly what it, is supposed to be. Yeah, great lyric writing. All, all those songs were were songs that really resonated with me. There's another one, Breaker Keeper, mm. which yes. uh, now that I have some of this backstory or insight, it, it comes more into focus. But when I heard that tune, you know, it has these heartbreaking lyrics. It, it seems to be a song about this sort of gut-wrenching nature of trying to communicate with someone who's you know, maybe suicidal or just kind of killing themselves. Someone someone that you is doing harm to themselves and you can't get through to them. And now that I know that in a way he's talking about his mother here, it makes it even heavier. But some of these lines in this song, these were lines that I felt like I had to go back and listen to or just read several times. It says, red on the carpet floor is all forgiven or forever stored in each lie we tell and each silence that we choose not to fill. Truth is, a part of me died when you said, I don't really want to be alive. Time stood still and hasn't really moved since. It's like, whoa, man. Yeah. It's just uh, heavy, heavy. You know, it's we've discussed this with other songwriters. Sometimes writing these kind of songs can be cathartic, but they can be overwhelming, yeah. too. Yeah. Uh, because then, you, then it lives in the world, and in a way, your trauma exists in the world. So it can be... It can be overwhelming to write these kind of songs, but again, there is a catharsis in it. 
but just now knowing the the specific focus of it that song really hit me i thought the opening track as well really set the tone nice for the whole record neither devout nor humble just a solid persistent kind you're choking on a principle i don't share or you mythologize the hiding bottles yeah in that one he has kind of a conversational approach to the verses that i think is is like very effective and again, right right from the onset, from the you know from the outset of the record, you hear they're just interesting turns of phrase. Like the, this is the, literally the beginning of the album. It says, "Out on Devon Humboldt, I escaped myself. Been flying all night. A legend or a fool? Can I be both? Or can I be both? I like that idea. Like, can I? Like, am I a legend? Am I a fool? Like, can I, can I be both of those things? Because I guess what that gets to is sometimes people who are brilliant also are insane in, in a way and yeah. <laughs> and and they don't fit into society and they're sort of marginalized in that way and uh you know a line like that gets you thinking about a lot of different things uh but but there's so much in it that makes you think it could be applied to so many different contexts so many different situations i also like how that track and they do this on other record uh tracks it sort of takes time to build you know they're not they're also very deliberate with their arrangements. We were talking about that with Hermanos Gutierrez. They they seem to put a lot of time and care into like figuring out how how to build the greatest level of tension without being overstated because he's a yeah. very understated singer. But there's just a lot of dynamic and nuance. Now, part of that probably goes to the production as well. Yeah. Because I'm thinking about some of these other artists that you mentioned that Phil Eck has produced. Uh, all of those records have that. Uh, and then sometimes I wonder, like, where is how much of that is the band? You got to imagine a lot of it is the band because, first and foremost, about the songs. But, you know, but that's what a great producer, yeah, yeah. That, that's what a great producer can do. He can take those songs and and build that drama in the songs, or or make it come across in the record in a way that that maybe if the band just went in and cut it on their own wouldn't. Because you say they're a great live band, that's a that can be a curse sometimes. Of a great live band is that it's difficult. To capture that same tap in that same energy and vitality in the studio, yeah. I've, the studio is like a sterile environment. It's slow. It's tedious sometimes, and that's where the producer can come in and really help elevate that sort of energy. But this is just a great record, start to finish. You mentioned the idea of writing about those things being cathartic or or being troubling or whatever. It really, I think, depends on what kind of person you are and then what your goal is in writing this song, you know, in, in whether you're trying to, and whether you're writing it in a therapeutic way to get it out so you can move past it or whether you're, you're writing it because you are like fixated on it and obsessed with it. I think there's like, there's a thin line, but they're different things. And it, you know, you could, you can tell the, the artists who never, Lane Staley, for instance, or or was writing about these things because he could not conquer them. He was it was about his life. It wasn't about him moving on. It wasn't about him putting it in its place. It's interesting too. You think about Chester Bennington. It almost sounds like it was both. You know, it, there are times where you listen to his lyrics and you're like, oh, he is he is putting this in its place so he can move forward. And there are times you can read the lyrics and you're like, ah, he's you know, he's doing this because he can't get out. You know, I th think there, it, 
it could it could go both ways depending on who you are and what you're writing about. And and also there's the catharsis that you can provide the listener because I think a lot of sure. why people gravitate to music or or films or any artistic form is to feel less alone in things. Mm-hmm. That's part of it. There's many levels to it, but that's part of it. And if there's an artist that you admire who's expressing something that you can relate to in your own way, yeah, that's powerful. That's profound. And again, like without you explaining the context, I took something from that one song, Breaker Keeper, that I could relate to. Yeah. That frustration of not getting, being able to get through to somebody that you care about is just one of the worst feelings in the world to feel like hopeless or helpless in your ability to, to, to get through to them. Yeah. And uh, even without knowing the context of that, y- you know, it's, it resonated. And I think that's what songwriters can do. That's what, that's the amazing thing about music is that. Someone could you you could write something from a certain standpoint, a certain experience, and the way the listener absorbs it, they don't have to necessarily know what the context or the specifics of that are. Mm-hmm. They're going to take it and and innately find a way to if it connects with them to to, to apply it to their own experience. And I, I'm just trying to think of there are other mediums that do that, but I don't know that there's a medium that does it in such a concise fashion. I mean, can yeah. do that in three minutes. Yeah, you, you know, a book. Uh, a film that takes a longer time to, to 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 accomplish that, but a song can do that in two minutes. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, I mean that's part of the the amazing part about music is being able to touch and communicate in such a quick way. Even even you know when there are ly- lyricists who are who are not who are not economical in their lyric writing, it's still short. All things considered, it's still not a lot of words. All things considered, to communicate you know, a story like that. To go back to the Gang of Views album about David LePepe's dad, he tells such an enormous story and it seems like a lot of words, but man, that you could you could write that story in a thousand pages of a book, you know, that he tells just in, in 10 songs. Well, that got me thinking of the song. That was one of my picks was Brothers. That, that, yeah. that song, man, every time I hear that, the way he the detail with which he tells it. But again, it doesn't feel like labor or like it takes that long, but you guys just get so much about his family story from that. Okay. Maybe that runs five minutes. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like you said, it's even then it's so concise and gives so much in such a short time frame. Great album. Thank you so much for the suggestion. Again, if you would like to suggest an album, <laughs> any of the ways we listed earlier on the podcast, just go to the website or, or do it in the Apple Podcast Reviews or there on Spotify. Thank you for listening. We will be back with you next time. Stay free, my goose.